reports came out and further uh, video uh, records show that there were 25 people in the river near that bridge that you just saw looking for the rain. They were feeling with their toes through all that mud and yuck, whatever is down there. Of course, it's close to a bridge and it's really nasty at that point because that's a very well-traveled area of the river and they came to help. There are many people today looking at romantic relationships and hoping for true love and a lifelong commitment to one another that are dropping the ring and the vows. This morning, I want to come alongside and help you find those. And that's the heart of the motive of this particular message. So join me in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And I've never quite seen it spelled that way. Okay. Lewis is running the PowerPoint today, and uh, Lewis didn't spell it that way. That's not Lewis's doing. The identity of the one who did that shall remain anonymous. But as we talk about cohabitation this morning, um, I want you to look at Genesis 2.24, and then I want you to look at John chapter 4 and verse number 18. What are we talking about here? Well, what cohabitation is, is what uh, the morally neutral term that some use to describe a man and a woman living together without the benefit of marriage that involves sexual relations. It is an ambiguous thing, and that is one of the largest problems with it. The future is ambiguous. For example, if this couple living together goes to the parents and say, we need some help uh, with a down payment on a home, who are the parents going to respond positively to? the daughter and the son-in-law who've been married, or the son and his girlfriend living together? Well, the one that are married. They'd be very hesitant to give any money to somebody who is not uh, fully committed. Now, who is doing this? Well, 75% of those in the United States uh, that are cohabitating are without a college degree and mostly non-religious. Many are, have been divorced and um, there are children oftentimes involved, not in all cases, but in many cases. Why is this happening? Well, those who research such things say that men are postponing maturity to later days in life. And the biological clock, women still continues to tick and hasn't slowed a bit. And that creates a crisis. Others are cohabitating because they're entirely fearful of marriage and messing it up and blowing it. They have witnessed divorce in their own family. They've witnessed the pain and tragedy and oftentimes the conflict that preceded, that preceded it. And they are scared witless that they can't do it and they cannot overcome. Now, a couple of resources answer the question where. I, if you um, want to look for the documentation for what I'm going to use today, best place to begin is the Bible. Uh, but uh, there is some other information that really substantiates the wisdom of God. Brad Wilcox, University of Virginia, has done an interview on some of his research. You can Google that and find it easily. And then Glenn Stanton's book, The Ring, makes all the difference. I want you to feel free to look at these things. Now, let me say, if you're not a member here at Beach Haven and you're cohabitating, you're welcome here and you're in the right place. In order to become a member, a person has got to give his, and heart, his or her heart and life to Jesus Christ, trusting him for salvation with a real saving faith that transforms the life. If a faith doesn't transform the life, it's not a real faith. It's not a saving faith. 
and that's the kind of saving faith we've got to place in Christ, then follow in baptism and church membership. In order to do that, something will need to change with your living arrangement. You're going to have to repudiate that and give your heart and life to Christ, but you're welcome to worship here and be a part of this. Membership you'll have to postpone until you get these things right and settle them according to the Word of God. And that, that's terribly, terribly important. And most folks that I've known through the years that have visited my churches that I've pastored and um, have uh, wanted to become members have been very, very cooperative uh, with that and have really been rather humble with it. If you are a member of Beach Haven Baptist Church, you have covenanted with your God and with this church to walk in a life of holiness and purity, and that is expected. Beach Haven members do not cohabitate without the benefit of marriage. We don't do that here, and we don't do that in our lives. We've made a covenant to God and to one another. Now, some of the benefits of marriage that I'll talk about today are also true not only for biologically born children with biological parents in the home, but they are also true for those families that have adopted children. It doesn't extend beyond that, other arrangements, but it does for adopted children. And some of the things I'm going to say today and some of the research I'm going to reveal to you today, um, there, there may be some exceptions in some places, but not everyone, or let me put it this way, no one is an exception to everything. Now, what happens is, is that when you get into a marriage relationship, uh, excuse me, when you get into a relationship and sexual relations is involved, there is a fog that comes over the mind and the heart, married or unmarried. For the married folk, that's good. It's supposed to happen that way. Because you enter into marriage with both eyes open, you continue with one eye closed. You've got to, or you'll pick each other to death. I mean, you're, you're with one another, and you see each other's faults. And I, I don't know about you, but many people find out what annoys their partner so they can do it over and over and over again. Not really, but that's uh, oftentimes what it does seem that way at times. So you enter into marriage with both eyes open, and that's why sexuality, one of many reasons, sexual experiences are not to come till after the vows are made. Because that closes one eye and helps you to live with one another and not pick at each other. If sexual relations are involved before a marriage, you get into the fog too soon, and you don't see what you're getting into. You don't see what you're getting into. And so it's incredibly important that we embrace and we trust the wisdom of God with what he says. So there, there may be some things that are an exception to some people and some cohabitating couples, but no one is an exception to everything. And, and what I'm going to ask you to do today, if you're cohabitating, is to lift up the fog. Get your head above it for a moment and see what's really going on, especially the truth of the Word of God. Now, in Genesis 2.24, Moses described a sold-out relationship between a man and a woman that is not ambiguous in the least degree. Now, God brought Eve to Adam. He created her. And uh, because in verse 18, he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Um, and that's true. Oh, in so many ways, it's not good for men to be alone. Uh, in many ways. And so God gave the man a woman and they were married and, when it, and God performed the first wedding ceremony and whenever God brought Eve to Adam, here is how he responded. In uh, verse um, 23, then we'll read verse 24. 
This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In the original Hebrew, that's a way of saying, wow. Then verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You can successfully resist cohabitation when you understand how it transgresses God's big issues. Now, how does cohabitation transgress God's big issues? Well, first, it transgresses creation. There are some who believe uh, and think and convince themselves that cohabitation is an on-ramp to marriage, that it is spring training before the season begins, that it's marriage-like. Scripture and the research offer no such hope. In Genesis chapter one, verse, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, God has created the world as a kingdom for his son, and he establishes and places there royals, people who are to rule in royalty and have dominion and rule over the earth. Adam and Eve are these. And so when God made Adam and Eve, God in making Adam made a prince. And when he made Eve, he made a princess and gave them authority and gave them dominion and gave them rule to rule on the earth. So when we read the creation account, we're not reading mere biology and history. We are reading royalty here in the text. And, and in order to build this kingdom, we've got to have verse number 24. A man shall leave his father and mother. And so there are a lot of men that could really appreciate that. Women too as well. You've got to identify and establish a family that has a separate identity from your mother and your daddy. There are only two people in a marriage relationship, husband and wife, and mom is not to interfere. That comes from this text in verse number 24. So leave your father and mother and then cleave. It's the principles of leave and cleave. That is, they're joined together, they clutch to one another, and they do not let each other go. Cohabitation, ladies and gentlemen, violates this principle. Never enter a serious relationship with someone for whom leaving is an option, and every time there's cohabitation, that happens to be an option. Cohabitation transgresses the creation principle of cleaving in a marriage. And the research demonstrates this and justifies the wisdom of God. 50 to 80% of cohabiting couples that eventually marry end up divorcing higher than the national rate. It's one of the most robust predictors of marital disillusion, one researcher says. They experience higher insurance rate. In marriage, insurance rates are lower because they tend to engage in less risky behavior. For example, I'm married and I have four children, therefore I don't have a motorcycle, I don't bungee jump, and I don't eat ghost peppers, and I don't root for Auburn University. I do not engage in risky behavior. Cohabiting men are less likely to carouse late night in bars. Cohabiting men generally do that. Uh, uh, excuse me. Married men are less likely to carouse late in bars. Um, 
Cohabiting women are more likely to be attacked. Married women, less likely because they generally have the presence of a man with them often and more often in public. Cohabiting couples are more prone to alcoholism and drugs and sexual permissiveness. Men that are cohabitating are four times more promiscuous than married men and women eight times more promiscuous than married women. There are less healthy relationship patterns and skills and there is more abuse that occurs in cohabiting relationships. Severe violence is five times higher in a cohabiting relationship. Women are nine times more likely to be murdered than married women. Uh, the breakup rate, five times higher than married. That they earn less and are less likely to build financially because they don't pool their resources together. Marriage after cohabitation does not improve the situation it oftentimes gets worse. In fact, cohabitation, one researcher has noticed, begins the process of deterioration in the man. And marriage doesn't generally stop it without a supernatural intervention of the grace of God. And the problem with that is that most men don't get humble enough to seek it. They resist, they bow up, they, they, uh, they, they become arrogant. Breakups in cohabiting relationships make it less likely that either partner will be married in the future. Cohabiting women are three times more likely to describe love as the foundation of the cohabiting relationship, but cohabiting men are four times more likely to describe sex as the objective and why they got involved. Cohabiting men are less likely to help with the chores. Married men spend eight hours more work doing so. Cohabiting men are less certain and dedicated than married men. Cohabiting women make more sacrifices than married women. Cohabiting men had higher levels of negative interaction with women even after they married. Ladies, listen, it's rigged, unintentionally probably, it's rigged against you. Cohabiting women usually suppose that if they can coax the fella into marriage, the relationship will improve. The research offers no hope, no basis of hope for that. In fact, nearly all the women studied are disappointed. So listen to me. Cohabitation is not another form of marriage. It's another form of singleness. Because it's ambiguous. People can leave. They've not made a commitment. They are both permanently available to the rest of the world because there's no marital commitment. This is not cleaving to one another. And cohabitation is not another way to commit to one another. It is actually an insult. Listen, here's what's implied in a cohabiting relationship. I'm not sure about you, so because I'm unsure about you, I'm going to test drive you. Move in, have sex, without your regard, regard for your walk with God. Now listen, here's the key. And I, I really need to probably preach on this sometime and, and discuss this in another context. But whenever a woman maintains her virtue and purity, and when the man will as well, that really puts the woman in a power position in a relationship. When you don't let him move in, or you won't move in with him, and, and when you will not go to bed with him, or... Here's what happens. You end up maintaining your power in the relationship. Here's what he has to do. Here's what you're giving up when you cohabitate and when you have sex before marriage. What you're giving up is this. In order to build you to the point where you are interested in intimacy, he can't be a jerk. 
He's got to have a commitment to you. He's got to act kindly, tenderly, and softly. If he doesn't, you get offended, and intimacy is the last thing on your mind. In some cases, murder might be on your mind. You get upset, you get bothered. But listen, when you're married, what he does is that he wises up. He's willing to make that commitment. But as long as you're cohabitating together and you let him act that way, he doesn't have to step through those, uh, those uh, he doesn't have to jump through those legitimate hoops in order to enjoy intimacy. Listen, girlfriend, you need to keep your power in the relationship. You say, well, that's manipulation. No, no, it's reality. It's the way God designed male-female relationships. That's how he designed it. In other words, the woman is there in many ways to take that boiling ball of testosterone that we call men and to direct it in the right direction and to, as some researchers say, to domesticate the male. Have you ever met any men that need some domestication? And, and, and that's why we've talked so often in the past about women improving men. Now, the feminists have just about ruined all of this because they have been strong proponents of shacking up. Boy, I've got a lot to say about that, but I'll tell you a story, an illustration of a couple in one of the churches I served. They were dating, and they, they were pure, but William was hesitant to ask Judy to uh, marry him. William was very hesitant to do so, and... Uh, he uh, was delaying, and it was obvious they needed to marry. They, they were terribly compatible, and they were um, the life of any place they entered. They had a good relationship, no, no qualms about one another. Well, Judy is growing increasingly frustrated with William's delay, and so um, they, they begin to talk, and he delays more. Well, in the process, Judy buys a car. And uh, they uh, are seen together in this new car. They celebrate it for about a month and all. And it's the talk of their group of friends. And finally, Judy has had enough delay. She looks at William and she says, William, it's time for us to do something. Buy the car or put it back on the lot. In one month, I did their wedding ceremony. <laughs> you see, she had power right power, and she used it rightly. And so cohabitation transgresses creation. But the second thing is, cohabitation transgresses, it transgresses Christ. Somebody may say, well, Jesus never said anything about cohabitation. Oh, yes, he did. You remember, Jesus had to go through Samaria, and he went to Jacob's well, and he sat there, and he met a woman there, and he asked her for a drink of water. And he promised her the water of life if she would begin to drink. And she would never thirst and have to come back to that well to draw again, a very laborious and difficult process. Well, he gets to talking with her, and she says, I want this water, so he goes to deal with the number one issue why people are not satisfied with what they are figuratively drinking in this life. He said, go call your husband. And she retorts, well, I don't have a husband. He said, you're speaking rightly. You have no husband. You've had, excuse me, you've had five husbands, but the one you're with now is not your husband. See, Jesus did deal with this, and he used the cohabitating relationship as a point of conviction because of her sin. That's how Jesus dealt 
with this issue. Now, the news is good. She did what so many are unwilling to do, and I hope you'll be willing to do today. She opened up the dry and drought-stricken recesses of her heart, and Jesus filled it with living water. And she got so excited, she went back to her village of Sychar and began to share the good news that Jesus had told her. And you know what her point was when she testified of Jesus? He told me everything I ever did. In other words, Jesus exposed her sinfulness and that led to her conversion. What delicious humility. What satisfying humility before God. And so she ends up embracing Christ as Savior and she begins to testify all over Sychar and wins the city to Christ. John chapter 4 verse 39 says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Listen, you get yourself right with God on this issue, there is no telling what God will do with you. You may make an impact upon the city and bring people to Christ. So listen, there is hope if you're struggling with this particular issue. Open up your heart and life to Christ. Repent. Rip it away from you. Embrace the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God will change and transform you. And we'll give you that opportunity at the end of the service today. You come and give your heart and life to Christ. Uh, staff will be here in the front to talk with you about that. Now, if you come today... Uh, to receive Christ or for baptism or for church membership, we're not going to suspect you've got a problem with this issue, okay? You just come. And uh, you may have made your decision earlier in the week or there may be something else prompting your decision besides this message. But you come. There is hope and there is no sin, there is no guilt too big for Jesus Christ to forgive. And that's what this woman at the well instructs us in. So cohabitation transgresses creation in Christ, but then it transgresses children. And it's not long after Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that God begins to talk about children in the life of Adam and Eve. In chapter 3, verse 15, he told, the, he told Satan himself, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He said there's going to be a child born, and from them born, and from that child born, one who eventually would come and thoroughly crush Satan himself. And when Jesus comes back in his second coming, that's precisely what he's going to do. But to get to that point, there had to be other children born, and they would contribute to the overthrow of evil. And that's what children can do. And so in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Eve has her children, and she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. She saw children as a gift of God, and dignified, and should be treated as royals. Well, of course, Cain killed Abel, but they had another child, a son, Seth. And it says in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And it is through the line of Seth that we eventually reach Abraham, that we eventually reach uh, Jacob, that we eventually reach Judah, that we reach the family of David, and from that issues Jesus Christ. And so the birth of Seth is a birth of hope, and that's how children should be treated, as royal hope. But when couples cohabitate together and there are children present, 
It's like asking them to run a marathon in work boots with a backpack full of bricks. Stability is transgressed. 151% of cohabitating couples with children are, li- are more likely to break up. 151% more likely. And here's what's interesting. In a global study of marriage and cohabitation, researchers found that less educated married parents and households are more stable than educated cohabitating households. Education is transgressed as well. Children in cohabitating households display more problem behaviors in school. And then teens in cohabitating households are 122% more likely to be expelled. Emotionally, there's transgression. They're more aggressive. Teens in uh, cohabitating households display more aggression, depression, and anxiety. Financially, it's especially a challenge. Kids from poor families where mom and dad are married are more likely to move up the income scale than kids in cohabitating families themselves. The poverty rate for kids in married households is 11%, but in children from cohabitating households, it's 47%. And most cohabitating households spend less on health and education. Safety is transgressed as well. Married households are less abusive. There's less incidence of abuse. Cohabitating households are 11 times more likely to suffer verbal, mental, physical, and sexual abuse. They're eight times more likely to have a death as a result of violence. And 64% of all non-parent abuse is committed by a live-in boyfriend. Now Jennifer Merv is a millennial who does research on millennials. And here's what she has stated. It's common knowledge, at least among many, that millennials are very committed to equality and justice. But when they cohabitate together, they deny that for their own children. So cohabitation transgresses kids. Cohabitation is flatly inferior to God's way announced in Genesis 2.24, and it's contrary to godly parenting. You can be a good parent or you can cohabitate but you can't do both. It transgresses kids. Cohabitation also transgresses the commands. Now, all sorts of excuses are made why uh, some want to disobey God's commands. We love each other. We'll save money. Everyone else is doing it. Um, Now, we would never tolerate that kind of thinking from our kids. What if a child were to say, you know, an adult child. Well, I stole from work, but look at what they pay me. Well, God still says you shall not steal. Yeah, I punched him, but did you hear what he said to me? Yeah, but God commands turn the other cheek. Well, I knew it wasn't true, but I was embarrassed to say. Yet God still says you shall not lie. See, we would not tolerate this behavior from our children, but there are many who will display it in their own lives. Whenever couples cohabitate, especially with children, they're handling God's commands precisely as the thief, the violent, and the liar in these cases. Now, what commands am I disobeying if I cohabitate? Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And yet, what you do when you cohabitate is that you ruin your public witness and no one's going to take you seriously. That's not what you want, of course, but that's precisely what's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 6.18 is another commandment. Flee sexual immorality. And yet, you've set up a house and home situation 
where you don't flee it, but you swim in it. And you're guaranteed that it's going to happen. That may not be what you anticipated, but that's what's happening. And then Ephesians 6, 4, bring your children up in the training and admonition of the Lord, but the cohabitating uh, arrangement undermines all God's significant issues. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer in all the sexually immoral. He's made it very clear. So there's no honor given to marriage or the marriage bed, but there's an invitation to the judgment of God, and that's not how intimacy should be. Now, I can hear somebody objecting. Well, I know it's wrong, but we need to get to know each other. Have you ever thought about that? Do you have a best friend? Did you have to live with your best friend to get to know your best friend? What about your grandparents? Did you have to live with your grandparents to get to know your grandparents? What about your cousins? Now, I need to take that illustration further. Because when people are cohabitating, they don't just live under the same roof. There's sexual immorality involved. So let me ask the question again. To get to know your best friend, did you have to live with your best friend and have sex with your best friend? See, let let me tell you what's happened here. And I'm not trying to dump all over you, but you have to understand these issues are intense to God and you're not going to escape his holiness and accountability. And only Christ in his way is hope. You've put yourself in a fog and you're not seeing clearly. We love you, we want you here, but we're going to be like a hospital. When we're sick, we take care of it. And we don't complain about you being here any more than we complain about sick people going to the hospital or doctor's office. But you've put yourself into a fog to where you come up with these silly and foolish justifications. we got to know each other. My goodness. And listen, if you have to live together to know each other, somebody's too immature for a relationship. It doesn't take that in order to know one another. And then, um, we save money. Well, the answer to that is the research doesn't bear that out. Financially, the cohabitating couple and family take a hit. Jesus said to trust God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And then don't trust your wisdom, but trust God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not upon your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Well, somebody might object, you know, I need to test drive this thing like I test drive a car. And I want to shout, people are not cars. What, 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 what we're doing when, what couples are doing when they cohabitate and they use this as a justification, what they're doing is that they are treating one another like a Ford Hugo with a half million miles on it. When in fact... God says we're more comparable because we're royals to Mercedes and Royals Royces. We don't treat people that way. The problem with many is, is that they don't know what God says in his word, but that's no excuse. Your heart is telling you, and you've got a Bible. And then others, frankly, try to forget God and think that they are smarter than God. But Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before ruin today god will let you change your mind 
He will cleanse you and purge you if you'll reject that and reject pride and trust your sins, relationships, and sexual behavior to him. But there's one thing, finally, that cohabitation transgresses. And I want you to look with me in Revelation 21, 7 and 8. Now, the book of Revelation makes use of apocalyptic literature. It can be a challenge to 21st century readers. There's a wonderful promise in verse number 7. And I want to say, if you're struggling with this issue, that promise is for you. Don't think it's not. Not only is the hard stuff in the Word for you, but the promise is too. You know, every miracle in the Bible began with a problem. And if this is where you are, if you will humble yourself before God, what you're going to find is that God will intervene on your behalf and God will give you victory and help you overcome. I've seen it happen consistently and constantly for 35 years. And you even have God's word on it here. Look what it says in verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. You're lonely. You feel worthless. You're insecure. You're guilty. God promises you right here. I'll take care of that need. And there's no cohabitating relationship anywhere on the planet that can. Jesus can. If by faith you will place yourself in the hands of God, God will come through for you. And so he goes on to say, I will be his God and he shall be my son. This is the king saying, you shall occupy the place of someone who inherits the kingdom. He'll elevate you and restore your royalty. Now that's clear. Now this is apocalyptic literature. The symbols and images in Revelation can be a challenge to, to uh, understand. But verse number 8 is not difficult to understand. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. If you're living in constant, in swimming in constant immorality or any of the other things named in verse 8, do not trust a profession of faith and a baptism to get you right with God. Do not trust that. If that's what's going on, this text leads us to believe that you really need to ask yourself some questions whether or not that was real. Because real faith purifies the life. You don't become perfect, and none of us are. I understand that. But increasingly, over the years and decades, you become more grateful to God. You become more loving towards Him. You become more obedient. You're not perfect. Don't misunderstand me. But ladies and gentlemen, if we have plunged ourselves for years into immorality, or any of these other named items here, and we're not bothered by it, and we aren't willing to rush before God, and we're arguing mentally, creating arguments and justifications in our head whenever someone's speaking on this, we've got a serious problem with God, and we need to penetrate ourselves and bombard ourselves with some serious questions about the genuineness and sincerity of our faith. Now, I want to apply this in two ways. One, stop trusting the world. This movement of cohabitation did not begin in the church or heaven. 
It began with the world. Stop trusting the world. Stop being impressed with the world outside of Jesus Christ. Stop being impressed with the celebrities. Stop being impressed with the athletes and their moral life. You can appreciate a celebrity for their acting ability. You can appreciate an athlete for prowess on the field or the court. But after that, do not take seriously anyone that lives outside the will of God. Pray for them. Love them. But do not admire the world because the Bible says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Noah was this way. And what if Noah had been as impressed with the world as some are today? When the flood came, everyone was wiped out except Noah and his family, eight people, and they were the only people to survive the flood. Noah wasn't impressed with the world. In fact, I'd go so far as to say, if you're living according to the world, you're actually behind the times. God has placed the church in the United States at the cutting edge and oftentimes the bleeding edge of truth. In the 50s, we warned everyone about the health effects of cigarette smoking. Well, they finally caught up later in the 90s. The federal government did. The Surgeon General you know, threw a bone towards it with warnings on packs of cigarettes, but the nation didn't get serious about that till the 90s. Well, the church was there in the 50s. Late 60s, we began to complain about the quality of public education in America. Thank God for public school teachers and administrators, but it's a challenge. Well, the world finally caught up with us in the 80s. They began to be concerned about those things. In the 70s, we became concerned about the effect of divorce upon children, and the world finally caught up in the 90s on that. It took them years, but they finally did. If you're walking according to the world, you're walking behind the times, and that's how it is with this. Eventually, and actually the research is out there. It's not popular yet. But the research is out there to substantiate Genesis 2.24. Leave your father and mother and cleave to one another. Stop trusting the world. Now don't hate it. Don't be angry. Don't be bombastic towards it. That's not what we're asking for. But we're asking for brokenness and prayer, concern and witness. Stop, stop trusting the world and start trusting God and his word. Trust what he says. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. There's no way that you'll walk with God in these issues and walk rightly unless you walk by faith. And walking with God is going to require some faith because you're going to have to take some leaps and steps you may not want to take. You're going to have to trust Him for what you cannot see. I turned 50 a couple of years ago. Why are you laughing? I don't look it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, y'all are wonderful. But before I turned 50, I was oftentimes thinking about, you know, the next step in my life. But I turned 50, and my thinking changed entirely. And I began to think about the end 
of my life and Sherry Michelle's. On October 6, 1990, in Maryville, Tennessee, she and I said, I do, in front of God and witnesses. I've got to tell you, it was one of the happiest days and the most surprising in my life because she said yes. And she showed up. When I turned 50, I started thinking about the end of her life and mine. And it occurred to me that her grandparents took care of themselves and lived to their early and mid-80s. Each one of them, however, last few years of their life suffered from dementia. My grandparents did not take care of themselves at all. And they lived to their mid and late 80s. And not one of them suffered dementia. The great-grandparents in my family took care of themselves, were intensely committed to holiness, and lived into their 90s with no dementia. My great-grandfather Jones, after whom Luke is named, pastored a Baptist church near Lumberton, Mississippi, until he was 92. So I'm doing the math here. I'm doing the calculations in my head here. I'm following the trajectory of her family and my family. On one hand, it's very possible she'll have to take care of me. Or I might have to take care of her. Now, I don't want anyone taking care of me. If, and let me just officially instruct my family, if I get dementia and I'm out of my mind, put me somewhere and go live your life, okay? I don't want them burdened. But if that happens to my dear bride, I'm going to be there every moment. And right now, I'm mentally preparing for that. I'm thinking through that. I don't know why, but I imagine the room to be paneled. And there's a twin bed there. There's a nightstand with her Bible that doubles as a weapon. It's so big. And there's a chair off to the side. Medications on the table. And where my heart is, is that I want to be there every moment as long as God gives me strength. I'm thinking through this. One of those scenarios is likely. And in my heart, there is no desire to run from that. I'm not better than other men. But in my heart, I'm not running from it. I'm running to it. I don't want that to happen. But if it does, it is my intention to jump in the middle of everything going on in her life. If I have to give up preaching, if I have to give up service, if I don't have time to read anymore, if I don't have time to hike anymore, that's thoroughly beside the point. It's my intention to immerse myself in the midst of her care and to drive it and to make sure 
everything is taken care of. Please listen to me, sweet people. Those of you unmarried, that one day may be, don't you let anyone into your home or your bed who has not first made that commitment to you legally and publicly in sacred marriage. Listen to me. In my relationship with her and many here, there is no ambiguity. There are no question marks. We are here till the end. Because on October 6, 1990, or on your wedding date, I left my father and mother, and I have been joined to my wife. That's the commitment God expects men and women to make with one another before setting up house and before engaging in intimate relations. And you can improve upon the wisdom of God. Now that verse that we looked at earlier, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, marriage is to be honored by all. God will judge adulterers and the sexually immoral. Is followed by Hebrews 13, 5. In fact, it's repeated twice in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is that not wonderful? In verse 4, he talks about marriage. In verse 5, he says, I will wed myself to you eternally because Jesus is superior. When you embrace Jesus Christ as master and Lord of life, as forgiver and savior from your guilt, God makes that promise to you. And he's inviting you to embrace that today. I hope you will. If you'll reject anything that's keeping you from Jesus Christ today, and if you will trust him to forgive you and love you and make heaven your home because of his cross and resurrection, that promise can be yours, and you can come collect it today. And I want you to do that. Let's stand together. Let's pray about it. And let's ask God to help you.